This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems, delivering innovation for civilian and military connectivity. It is time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters Defense with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday, we focus on defense. I'm your host, Francis Rose. U.S. Space Command will stand up a joint cyber center to protect satellite and space-based communications security. Space Command Commander General James Dickinson tells the Senate Armed Services Committee the center will integrate with other cyber commands, including U.S. Cyber Command. FedScoop reports the services will contribute resources to operating the center. The Navy's first test of manned and unmanned ships is underway at Naval Base San Diego. The Navy's third fleet's running unmanned integrated battle problem 21. U.S. Pacific fleets overseeing the exercise. The Army will get help from industry to evaluate which of its apps it should and can move to the cloud. A request for information says most of the apps the Army moves will go to its enterprise cloud environment, Sea Army. FCW reports responses to the RFI are due next Wednesday. President Biden's first 100 days in office include a skinny budget that clarifies some of the biggest defense priorities for his term. And the 2021 annual threat assessment of the U.S. intelligence community could become the blueprint for where those defense dollars go. Major General Arnold Panaro, U.S. Marine Corps, retired as CEO of the Panaro Group. He's chairman of the board of the National Defense Industrial Association and member of the Defense Business Board. Arnold, welcome. It's great to see you. Read the tea leaves for me. What do you see in all of these pieces that we have about President Biden's top priorities in defense now that he's been in office uh, about 100 days? Well, Francis, first, very excited to be with you here today. And I think what we're seeing is a very fundamental shift in the strategic framework that surrounds the national security strategy. We're moving from a America first or go it alone approach where you kind of stiff arm some of your allies and partners. We're moving to what the Biden administration would call diplomacy first, which is a whole of government approach, primarily led by our State Department and National Security Council with our Department of Defense still a key element but really in a supporting role and not the lead element as, as it has been in the past. And you mentioned the worldwide intelligence threat, which was the first time we've had that in five years. And all of our intelligence experts pointed out the existential threat from China. And it's not just militarily, it's economically, it's politically, and very alarming technologically, where they've not only caught up, but gotten ahead of us in some areas. So frankly, the importance of this strategy is essential that we basically have the outputs of our government and approach with our allies and partners to be better, faster, cheaper than China. Your observation is particularly cogent and important, I think, Arnold, because not just diplomatic leaders have been asking for that change in strategy for a decade or longer. So have defense leaders. Bob Gates said in the late 2000 zeros, it uh, talk, started to talk about soft power at that time. Uh, Secretary Mattis said uh, that uh, an increase in the State Department budget would mean that he would have to deploy fewer people around the globe. What do you see happening next in that respect? What is a marker, do you think, that we're continuing on the path on, with the vision that you've laid out, Arnold? 
Well, I, I would say the Biden administration is extremely disciplined, and I see already they've implemented a lot of the priorities that they basically outlined during the campaign and said they were get going right away. For example, they, they've rebuilt uh, trust and confidence with our South Korean allies. Uh, they're looking at how do we put together a coalition in the Pacific uh, to deal with the concerns that about China that, frankly, some of their neighbors have, you know, with China in the South China Sea making threatening moves toward Taiwan. Japan is concerned about it. India is concerned about it. South Korea is concerned about it. They've rebuilt some bridges with Germany where the previous administration was going to actually withdraw troops at a time when Russia is building up on the Ukrainian border, eastern Ukrainian border with hundreds of thousands of troops. And so I think they're putting into practice exactly what they said they were going to do. What it has impressed me at the start is that they're very disciplined in terms of the course they're on. So I think we're already seeing some of these pieces. But the diplomatic approach takes a lot of hard work and it takes a, a, a time to incubate, particularly to basically reverse some of the problems that have been created with sort of our stiff arm approach to the rest of the world in the past. As I read through I that threat assessment, Arnold, I saw China first, I saw Russia after that, Iran, North Korea, the usual list that one would expect to see. So it's, it sounds like you're describing a, a change only in approach and not necessarily a change in the priority of the threats. Am I hearing you correctly? Well, I would say that you know, going back to when Ash Carter was Secretary of Defense, he identified those as the five priority threats. And frankly, that's been carried on, although the intelligence apparatus uh, did not bring it out into the public. But I would say what's changed fundamentally is China has made a substantial march. So it's very different in terms of their capabilities, in terms of their intent, in terms of their basically thumbing their nose um, at the rest of the world. Uh, as I said, economically, they now diplomatically have more embassies than any other country in the world. Uh, they're on the march uh, economically, they're on the march militarily, and again, technologically. I think the fundamental change has been what they've been able to achieve in terms of eroding our technological edge, surpassing us in certain areas. And so we've got a lot of homework to do in our government, particularly in our Department of Defense. Help me connect this, Arnold, to appropriations and authorizations. We learned this week, wasn't, wasn't a surprise, that the Biden administration's 2022 budget request won't include a future year's defense plan. That's not a surprise, but what does that mean for what we should start to think about, start to look for and plan for, for the 2023 request, request and the 2023 authorizations? Well, Francis, I would say people are talking about what they call the skinny budget. That's a real misnomer because this budget that he's asked for for defense for the top line is a very hefty budget. In fact, in constant dollars, it's higher than the peak of the Reagan buildup. The skinny refers to the fact that all of the big justification books and details that typically accompany the budget and go up to the Congress and Mayflower moving vans probably isn't going to be available till late May. We hope it comes up then. Uh, but I think we're going to see some fairly fundamental shifts, some emphasis on cyber, on high technology, uh, on accelerating the way that we we get software, which is essential to all our command and control and all of our weapon systems. So, and then for the future, I think we've got to basically focus on getting more bang for the buck. As I indicated, these are the highest budgets uh, we've seen in constant dollars, and yet we're not getting the bang for the buck we should. We're not basically right now able to basically be better, faster, cheaper than China. 
So we're going to look to see in that future year plan over the five years, are they making the tough choices? Are they really embedding the priorities that they say they want to have into the budget? And are they getting Congress to go along? Are they reducing DOD's massive overhead? Are they streamlining and accelerating uh, the acquisition of these technologies and get them into the hands of the warfighters faster? Are they taking on some of the personnel scourges like sexual assault and suicides? Are they protecting the families? Those are the things that I think we're gonna have to see when the details of the 22 budget come up and then when we see the five-year numbers, which probably we won't see till they do their full, full first full budget, which will be you know, in FY23. Uh, Arnold Panaro, terrific insight as always. Thanks for joining me today. Always a privilege to be with you, Francis. Up next, getting the Defense Department to the cloud. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the protest anomalies that could become regular business. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. The Defense Department's Chief Information Office has hit a big milestone with its Defense Enterprise Office Solutions Project. NextGov reports security configuration changes have moved the department closer to allowing direct Internet access for web browsers. Other cloud offerings inside the department are hung up in protests, though. Frank Kendall, senior fellow at the Center for American Progress, former Under Secretary of Defense for Acquisition Technology and Logistics. Frank, welcome. It's great to see you again. The former CTO at DISA, Dave Mahelsik, told Defense News the trend these days is most co large contracts are protestable. How did we get here, especially with something as important to the DOD's moving forward as these cloud contracts? Well, uh, I guess in theory, all contracts are protestable up to a point. I mean, uh, if, if if the government does a good job of putting the RFP together, uh, follows its own rules and documents what it did, then it's pretty secure from a protest, but they can still happen. I, I really don't know if they're becoming more prominent or not. I do know that when you do certain types of procurements and certain ones that have very high levels of interest uh, for the companies involved, that the odds that somebody will try to find a reason to protest are higher. Uh, sometimes incumbents will protest in order to extend a period of performance. That's not unheard of. Uh, but I, I don't know that there's any practice per se, uh, and we could talk about OTAs, other transaction agreements possibly, but I don't know that there's any practice by the department that's making things more protestable. The only thing that I could possibly point to there is uh, the urge to go faster. Uh, and when people go fast, they tend to get sloppy sometimes, and that may open up some possibilities. And that defeats the entire purpose of going fast, though. If you go fast and you go sloppy and you don't tighten down the screws, you wind up in a protest cycle like we're seeing with Jedi, like we're seeing with Dios and so on, right? Uh, yeah, that's true. And also when you're exploring new ground, um, you know, OTAs are kind of a blank sheet. And if you're doing something really creative there, uh, uh, then it, again, it opens up the possibilities. And, and lawyers who work for the companies who may have lost the source selection are pretty creative at finding ways to protest. Is it, is it significant that we're seeing, uh, at least perceiving, a higher level of protests in some of the high-profile um, process things? We're, we're not seeing nearly as many protests or hearing about as many, at least, 
in weapon systems, but it's things like cloud contracts and, and back office systems and, and O&M and stuff like that, Frank. Does that make a difference as far as um, something in the landscape that you see? I'd have to see some data, Francis. I, I don't know what the data actually says about that. And sometimes it only takes one or two instances to give people an impression that they think is much more general. Uh, I'm, I, in the companies I work with, I'm not seeing that, uh, but that's anecdotal. So I, I'm not sure that it's happening more often. You know, if it happens to you a couple of times on some big things you care a lot about, then, then it, it probably feels like a trend uh, where it may not necessarily be that. And that's exactly the reason I wanted to have this conversation. There is this perception, everything gets protested and on and on and on. The data bears out, what, what do we know about the data? Where should we go to look to see what the data indicates, Frank? I used to publish data on this. It was the annual report that I used to put out on the performance of the acquisition system, included data on uh, numbers of protests, what types of contracts were protested, and the, and the outcomes. And the data shows that uh, most most things are not protested. A relatively small fraction and a very small fraction wins on a protest. It, it's not a high payoff endeavor to protest a contract. What makes this situation better if it's bad in the first place? And obviously we look at the data to determine that and, and we will do that. But what improves the situation, at least in the minds of the people who potentially will lodge protests in some of these high-profile cases? Well, the first thing is to do the job right up front from the government side. Write a good RFP, put out a good set of requirements, a good contracting approach, good acquisition strategy. Write good rules for the source selection for the evaluation. Make sure they're clear to industry so people understand what you're doing. And then follow those rules uh, and document what you did, because if you have to go to court, uh, you're going to have to go show that you followed your rules. And if you can't do that, you're going to have a harder time. Uh, a good example of this one, and it's relevant to the types of programs you're talking about, was healthcare uh, management software, the, uh, the Genesis system. Uh, I told the Secretary of Defense at the time we started out on that, that he needed to give me the time up front to get the contract uh, RFP right and get the contract vehicle right. And he was very good about that. Uh, Secretary Hagel at the time, you know, let me do that. I took about a year, year and a half, I think, uh, with my program manager to get it. Uh, worked hard with industry. This was a novel thing for us. We hadn't done something like this before. So in, in a case like that, you do need to do a little bit of homework. You need to interact with industry uh, and you need to be very careful and think through ahead of time the reasons people might want to protest so that you're, you've covered those bases and made sure that you're not vulnerable there. We have about it's worth a that investment up front. We have about a minute left, Frank. Does that process that you just laid out intersect uh, appropriately, intersect well with the idea of trying to move quickly on things as the department talks about so much today? In the long term, it does. I mean, if you, if you lose uh, 100 days for a protest uh, and then you lose another year and a half redoing the competition or another year, let's say, as we have in some cases, then you're really not gaining anything by going fast. And I'm not arguing for people to slow down uh, inordinately. I'm just arguing for them to be professional and, and do the job well up front. You know, the biggest constraint on our, our contracting officers and our contracting community is often time. Uh, they're trying to get a lot of contracts awarded in every year. Uh, they're, they're under pressure to meet their obligation rates. And it, it's easier for them to use proven vehicles that they're used to and are familiar with. 
uh, as we go into more OTAs, as we go into more novel contracting approaches, we're taking some risk with that. And that may have that may be merited. It may be a really good idea to try a different way of doing business. Uh, but you got to do it with your eyes open and, and be aware of the fact that because you're the government, uh, you've got an obligation to treat people fairly. And if they think they have not been treated fairly, they will protest. Frank Kendall, thanks very much as always. Great to see you. Great to see you too. Up next, China uses American technology to build weapons and it's all legal. Straight ahead on Government Matters, closing the loopholes that give U.S. adversaries an edge in great power competition. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. Be right back. Seven Chinese companies are on an export blacklist tonight because they use American technology to create weapons for the Chinese military. The problem is the companies aren't doing anything illegal. Mark Lewis is executive director of the Emerging Technologies Institute at the National Defense Industrial Association. He's former director of defense research and technology at DOD. Mark, welcome. Thanks very much for coming on the program. The Washington Post wrote about this problem recently in this way. In 2014, the Air Force released an unclassified report on the technology of air warfare that included hypersonics. The Chinese read the American research. Their scientists began showing up at U.S. conferences. They started investing. They're not doing anything wrong. What are we doing wrong to let them basically have this edge? They now have fielded this technology. We haven't yet. Well, I would I would actually claim that the Chinese have done some things wrong. All right. So they've gotten information from us in legitimate ways. They've read our papers. They've read our documents, things that we've put out there openly. Uh, they've also exfiltrated information. Uh, remember, the Chinese use their intelligence agencies to gather information and they will hand it off to their companies. So it's something we would never do. It's a it's an ethical line we we wouldn't cross, but but they cross it quite freely. So 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 bad on them, but also bad on us. Um, we have frankly uh, allowed in some cases our technology to fall into others' hands, and in some cases we just have taken a leisurely pace in development, and and allowed other countries to step up their development and uh, and either approach approach our capabilities or in some cases exceed them. It is the nature of U.S. governance, small g governance, to share what we know within the bounds of reason, and hence this 2014 unclassified report on hypersonics. Is it maybe time to rethink that? What's the responsibility of the United States government and what's the responsibility of the defense industrial base to do a better job at protecting what we know while still sharing as much as is reasonable? So I think we have to be really careful. There are no easy answers here because balance is essential, right? One of the strengths of our scientific community, one of the reasons that we have such a successful scientific community is the free exchange of information, the fact that researchers can interact and share ideas, share, share, share results. And that's how we advance science. So we don't want to completely clamp down on that. At the same time, we don't want to give away the farm. I mean, there's some secrets, some developments, some 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 technologies that we clearly do not want to share. And so it's a it's a common sense balance in general for very basic research. We're, we're OK sharing that for more applied research. We need to be careful in what we release and, and what we allow others to get their hands on. One of the issues that you mentioned at the beginning of this conversation is the exfiltration of data. The Chinese have proven to be very good at that. Um, are we taking the right uh, path to trying to protect what we have, both in government and in the DIB, 
to be able to slow that or if we can't stop it altogether? So I think we, we, we I think we are simple answer. I mean, we, we we've had our wake up calls. I think across the, the Department of Defense, there's a realization that we have to be very careful about our information, about our data. I think industry has worked with us hand in glove. Um, I, there are a number of efforts that that have gone towards making sure that the Chinese and other nations uh, don't take information that that they're not entitled to. Um, you know, I highlight the work of of CFIUS, the Committee on Investment in in in, uh, in uh, 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 foreign investment in, in U.S. companies that monitors for um, untoward uh, investments that might put our industrial base at risk. Um, back to hypersonics. How do we catch up? What do we prioritize? We're starting to see the uh, the services indicating they're testing this technology, ready to field it within the next couple of years. So it sounds like we're closing the gap. Uh, are we on the right path to doing so in your view, Mark? So I actually think we're on the right path. Um, hypersonics is, as you point out, a very frustrating uh, area because it's an area that the United States always led in. Uh, we, it's an area that we invented, we developed, we did all the fundamental research, and then we allowed that lead to slip away. And, and in, in large parts because of decisions that we made, or in some cases, decisions that we didn't make. I, mean, I always point out in 2010, we flew the first X-51, that was the Air Force's hypersonic flight test vehicle. Um, it's now 2021, and we haven't really flown the next jet-powered hypersonic system, and that's because of the relatively leisurely pace that we took. So I think across the department, there is a sense of urgency. There's an understanding that we need to step up. We need to be accelerating our pace. All the services have stepped up to this, the Army, the Navy, the Air Force. Um, I, 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 we've got a roadmap. Uh, Mike White, who's the principal director for hypersonics, has developed, I think, a very well-conceived, uh, consistent, logical, coordinated roadmap. And we just need to press on with it. Mark Lewis, thank you very much for joining me. Great insight. Thank you so much for having me. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. You get a preview of every show when you sign up for our daily program guide. You just text GOVMATTERS to the number 58671. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrice Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group. You have been listening to the Government Matters Podcast, sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. Stay tuned for a brief interview with Tony Bardo of Hughes about how government can use software to find wide area networks to deliver the best digital experience for constituents and staff. Government agencies are continuing the transition to the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions Vehicle, EIS, for telecom-related services. Industry experts are calling on agencies to use it for citizen-facing government. Tony Bardo is here. He's Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes Network Solutions. Tony, welcome. It's good to talk to you again. What does the EIS vehicle provide for agencies 
to make these kinds of transitions, to do the network modernization that they need to do? It's a great question, uh, as you always do lead off with, uh, Francis, and it's good to see you again, talk to you again. But uh, here's, it, it's more interesting really to talk about what it hasn't uh, delivered yet. And uh, GSA fa faced an interesting conundrum when they were uh, putting EIS together and it was necessary to do so and they had the right vision for it and the right ideas to bring in some new blood and new new vendors and new kinds of companies. But the the services available to to the government at the time were still the same services that have been around for 20 years. Um, and that is the the MPLS network um, services that worked during the end of FTS 2001 and throughout the networks contract. So um, the, the, the new services, the new modern services were just emerging. These are the new SD-WAN, the managed broadband services. And these are the kinds of services that are better equipped for handling the large surge and surges of bandwidth demand for the agencies, particularly at the edge. So what was what the agencies were sort of presented with was, here's a new contract and it's got a new timetable and it's got a new scope of work and a new span of work and a new body of, 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 uh, of a performance period, but it didn't really have the new services that met the goal or the, the mantra of transforming. So what we saw in some of the early um, fair opportunities that uh, that the agencies were issuing, and it really took them a long time to start issuing them, um, but they 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 were basically asking for like for like services, and that wasn't really a a plan for transforming, and it didn't. The, many of the fair opportunities, unfortunately, did not show the the vision for transforming. SD-WAN was emerging, so it was a tough call. It was a, you know, we've got to get this contract, new contract out, because the old contract is aging, it's expiring, it's got its uh, limited time frame. So it was an interesting, um, you ask an interesting question. It, it, the platform really wasn't ready there to, to, uh, to transform and leap into transformation and modernization. It's starting to happen, though. You uh, gave me a term before we started recording, and I want to tell, want you to tell me what it means and why it's important. Managed service provider, why does that matter to agencies, and, and why is that concept helpful to them in these transitions, Tony? The concept, concept is really helpful because the, the, pro, the providers and the services and managing them um, makes it easier for the agencies. These, these agency telecom managers have really got it tough. They 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 have this they have this contract that they were uh, compelled to use and and encouraged to use, and they wanted to modernize. Uh, they're running their own networks today every day. They have to issue these fair opportunities to compete the business among the uh, providers, the the prime uh, contractors on EIS. And they've got to do it all at the same time and all with the same workload and workforce that they that they have. So these are really, really tough. Getting obtaining managed services takes the burden off of the limited staffs of the agencies 
and lets the lets the um, service providers do the work. So managed service providers can then um, offer these services, manage the networks, manage the uh, security aspects of the networks, manage the routing of the traffic on the networks through the modern architectures of broadband, managed broadband, and managed SD-WAN. Tony, there's always more great ideas to talk about than there is time to talk about them. It's great to talk to you again. Thanks very much. Thank you, Francis. Take care.